Dean Carey began his professional career in Melbourne in 1977 and for over 35 years has taught acting and performance skills. For almost four decades, Dean Carey has been a stand for powerful and meaningful performance and for every actor being able to fully explore, grow and be their best. Dean has taught around the globe and is the author of The Acting Edge, The Actor's Audition Manual and Masterclass, Essential Texts for the Theatre Maker. He has served appointments as Head of Acting at the West Australian Academy of Performing Arts and at the National Institute of Dramatic Art, where he also taught on the staff for 12 years. Dean has also taught and or directed at all major training institutions around the country. In 1987, he created an advanced diploma in performing arts acting, becoming the founding and creative director of the Actors' Centre Australia. In this conversation, we explore actor training, the history of Actors' Centre Australia and Dean's collection of science fiction memorabilia. Yes, and uh, have you got, you got a cup of tea? I've got a glass of water here, which I poured in case it sounds like I'm having a wee in the background, so. (laughs) That's all right. We can do a radio play. We don't. (laughs) Oh, I love radio plays. Um, Yes, there's something special about them, isn't there? Sort of when you have to sort of uh, create a world in audio. Mm -hmm. We learn from stories, don't we? Stories are our, our cultural necessities. Do you remember the first story that um, you told? I told personally, you mean, or read? Yeah. No, that, that, that you told personally, that you invented, wow. of your invention. Wow. Uh, let me think. We had a secret uh, cubby house in the back of the house around the corner, and I found some old tarp from my dad, and we put it up there, and we put a couple of uh, milk crates in there. And we would go in there uh, and share stories when I suppose I was six or seven. And it was a really magical, special place. And probably was from that time I got connected to, I mean, conversation and communication, I guess. Because uh, they were, we went to a really magical place and we told, you know, fairy tale stories, basically. Um, and I remember my great my grandmother bought me 50 golden book collection for christmas one year so i had 50 golden book disney golden book the entire collection and that was my absolute treasure trove peter pan and all the amazing stories and i would get i'd read one every night in bed so i i loved literature from that moment on did you, did you have one that had the Tinkerbell, which uh, encouraged you to turn the page? Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yes. <laughs> definitely. There's Tinkerbell now. <laughs> I couldn't, but it's my Tinkerbell text coming through. Yes, turn the page, Dean. Turn the page. <laughs> uh, tell me, are you able to go to the theatre now and give yourself over? Can you, can you relax when you go to the theatre or are you constantly analysing? Uh, very hard to give over. Uh, yeah, I'm it always is, isn't it? Oh, God. Um, it's very rare I get picked up and taken away by something where I go, great, I'm just, I'm there. I can completely give myself over. Um, I'll sit in the foyer and think that music's not right. That doesn't set the atmosphere. I'll walk into the theatre and go, why isn't there a blue light coming from rear stage corner right? Um, would would like that that beautiful chaise long so beautifully and give us this evocative, shadowy world we're about to go. I mean, I do all that. And my poor partner, Siobhan, um, we, we finished a play and she says to me, I really enjoyed that. And I go, yeah, uh, I would have probably, and then I tell her and she says, don't tell me any more because you've just, of course you're right and you've now ruined it for me. <laughs> was that the persona of the young Dean as a boy? Were you um, uh, bossing people around and um, trying to, to get your way? No, no. I was, um, I was bullied at school very badly. And so I escaped into uh, afternoon television. So I was watching Star Trek and Lost in Space and Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and Time Tunnel and Land of the Giants and all these incredible worlds apart from my own boring conservative melbourne upbringing which almost drove me crazy i just knew i didn't i sort of didn't belong and we're talking in the 60s now in melbourne and not the not the melbourne it is now 
my gosh, it was just such a different place back then. And so I began to buy models and paint them and they were illuminated at nighttime. So my room in my house, uh, my family house became uh, an Aladdin's cave. It had luminescent models everywhere, creatures, monsters, um, spacecraft, undersea spacecraft, everything. So I was completely in, and I, I now have a science fiction memorabilia collection at Actors Centre, which uh, some students are stunned by and some couldn't care less. <laughs> Why do you think science fiction was such a, a genre which seduced you? Do you was that the, uh, the other world creation of it? Only thinking back to, I'm a great, I've always been a, a big person on justice and ethics and equality and humanity and compassion and caring for the planet and all that stuff. I've, I've always, always had that. And so I watched Star Trek and saw, uh, it, this is 1968, and saw a black female communications officer, uh, a Russian pilot, it just during the Cold War, of course, an alien science officer, a Scottish engineer, uh, an Asian helmsman. Uh, who else was on board? Leonard Nimnoy. Um, um, alien, Spock, yes. Smith, alien Spock and aliens. Yes, yes. That's right. Uh, and Captain Kirk. And there was no money uh, in that world. Uh, there was no need. There was no narcissism. It was an incredibly egalitarian uh, world of integrity and and adventure and, and search and oh, I, I found it just absolutely incredible that that world could actually exist uh, and it wasn't the world I was in and it wasn't the world I was aware of. So I found that just I was compelled into this, wow, what would it be like in the future and, and what are we capable of as people? I mean, Gene Roddenberry, who created Star Trek, did an absolutely extraordinary job in 1968 to create something which was, well, it never been done before. Yeah. Science fiction is a great genre for the, the film and uh, television medium. Uh, have we seen many theatre plays based around science fiction? Are you aware of many? I've never, ever, I don't remember seeing one. There was one in London I saw called Fantastic Planet, I think, but it was, a, it was more of a cabaret sort of um, musical type thing that had strange creatures and sort of alien things in it, but it, it certainly wasn't a, a sci-fi adventure. I mean, I'm, I'm glued to Black Mirror at the moment. Uh, oh, watching. yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I can't believe it. And I, um, interestingly, I was trying to describe to somebody why it affects me so much and why I think it's so incredibly powerful. And mostly in TV and film, the director directs it from a particular point of view. So you're seeing it from the hero, from the heroine, from the victim, from the whatever. But Black Mirror doesn't seem to be influenced by any character, a bit like a dream, and just tells it as it is, which is why I think it's so powerful. Because you're not even aware that it is a film or a TV show. You feel like you're sort of imagining it. It harks back to uh, that, that old show, The Twilight Zone, a bit, doesn't it? Black Mirror, do you think it has yeah, similarities? Absolutely. I loved it. I loved it. Um, in the future, standalone, uh, very strange and driven by ideas, which is what I love about Black Mirror. The idea of a future loneliness or a future need for a companion who's not real or a need for virtual reality or a need for... There are so many episodes that I just... I've watched twice or three times over going, that's a bit like a Star Trek episode where it, it has incredible complexity and really makes you think like a great novel. And I think also, you know, we're seeing those shows now which sort of merge that science fiction reality with, with reality, you know. I mean, we're living it at the moment with COVID-19 a little bit. But uh, did you see that show Years and Years? Oh, fantastic. Wasn't that I extraordinary? Mean, yeah. If, if, you, if they had shown a president popping his head out of the White House and then walking across garbage in Lafayette Park with all his minions following him and then getting for, in front of the church for a photo op and holding up the Bible and making sure it wasn't upside down, you wouldn't have believed it. You've yeah. gone, you'd go, the writers have had a field day that afternoon with <laughs> dreaming up that. A president 
would never put themselves in that position or do that. And I watched it live on television. I I couldn't believe it. Years and years, amazing show. Mm. What was your artistic expression like at school? Was there there much room for for drama practice or or music, I suppose? Well, I was lucky because uh, in my year nine, I think it was, or... And of course, as I mentioned, I was bullied at school and 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 marginalised and um, never fitted in and teased and ignored and all the fun things you have when you're Is growing that, up. Is that because you weren't a sports person, or yes? So I was I was very sort of sensitive, quiet, um, listening, watching, observing. I wasn't going to be with the boys on the on the oval, uh, running around playing sports. So when the uh, headmaster said that next next semester we've got a choice between sport or drama uh i i couldn't believe it and so i chose drama and walked into a room without blackboards whiteboards without desks and chairs just a, a an open room a woman and this was during the time when i was i was brought up by nuns and brothers a woman was sitting on the floor with her hair out with a dress on and we all sat cross-legged in a circle and she said my name is maureen and I'd like to get to know you all, and let's have some fun. And I went, I've never heard those words said before, and I've never felt this energy of rapport and curiosity about who we were. And boys shared in that circle who I thought had killed me off, or I'd killed them off at school. Thought, oh, well, I'll never talk to them. I don't don't want to know them. And I would hear them talk and think, wow, they're as frightened as I am. They're as isolated and searching as I am. And it was extraordinary time. But um, much like in um, uh, Dead Poet Society, we came back after one summer and I ran down for my class and the room, drama room, had been turned into a storage facility and Maureen had been fired. Oh, horror. And I went, wow. And I thought, of course, they were suspicious of what happened down into that corridor. Why are the boys laughing down there? Why can't they wait to get into that room? Why do they come out looking so transformed and, and connected? We, don't, we can't have that. We can't have any of that because that, that sort of undermines our authority and our power over these boys. So after about a year, probably, it might have been less, she was gone. But she left her mark on me and I, I, I have never forgotten it. You ever kept in touch with that, Maureen? I've tried to find her. Her name was Maureen Stewart and I've tried to find her because I would love to say, hi, Maureen, I'm 60 years of age now. You met me when I was 10. Um, and what you, whatever happened in that room, and I can't remember precisely other than sitting in a circle and talking and, and connecting, but uh, my life would, wouldn't have been the same without her influence. Did you have much access to live performances? Did you go after the theatre? Well, my mum was an entertainer. And she still is. Um, she's 89 and she still sings in the nursing home that she's at at the moment. Uh, and um, she's quite amazing. She said she went to the Entertainers Club in Melbourne a few months ago and she sang a few songs and got everybody else singing New York, New York. And then she got home, back to her, her nursing home, to her room, and uh, put her feet up and poured a sherry. And then one of the women came in and said, um, Denise, Denise, we need you in the main the main." Um, uh, area because um, they're waiting. We had a performer come and they haven't arrived. We need some songs. So mum put a makeup on, finished the sherry, you know, put a sparkly, you know, spangly top back on, walked down there and she said there were six beds with people who were not long for this world lying there. There were five wheelchairs. There were five people staring at the floor in chairs. And she got up there with the microphone and she said, I can't do this alone. I need you all to be with me. So and she went, walked up to one person and grabbed their hand in the bed and started singing whatever the song it was and they began to squeeze a hand. She's quite amazing and went yeah. from person to person until she had the people who could stand were standing and she did four or five numbers. They all clapped and she went back to her room. So she took me to all the shows at the Rivoli and um, Tiki and John's and Her Majesty's and the comedy so I saw all those musicals in the 70s uh, and was just fascinated uh, by a curtain going up and all these people being transported into this other, other world. 
Do you recall a particular show which uh, seduced you that little bit more than the others that sort of called to you and say, you need to be on the stage, young Dean Carey? <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, what, what really affected me was a show in the 60s on ABC TV called The Magic Circle Club. And it had a woman and a bear that sat on a toadstool and then opened up a book and these magical creatures came and these dastardly people. And it was, I, w I couldn't get enough of it. Great um, cast, Ernie Bourne and John Michael Hausen and um, uh, Liz Teal, I think. Leonard Teal's wife, Liz, was uh, the, the girl in the, in the show. Festa yeah. Fumble, wasn't it? It was the villain. Yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> and I would run home from school. I would do anything I could to be sit, sitting on front of our front of our black and white television, cross-legged, with a with a glass of Milo, glued to that screen, and saying, "Take me. I'm here. Where are we going today? What what magic's going to happen?" Uh, and I certainly got. I didn't quite get that from the musicals I saw, but I certainly was fascinated by what actors could do to transform the energy of a space and how an audience could become um, spellbound by, by a song, a moment, and, you know, and how they could gasp. And, of course, I became an usher. When I became an actor when I was 17, professional actor, I, be I was, became an usher to make money uh, during gigs because I was doing... I was on Prisoner and Skyways and Cop Shop and... Sullivan's and so you're involved that. with that Crawford production house. You did a, yes. lot, a lot of shows with Crawford's, yeah, yeah. Um, and um, I became an usher, and so I would sit in the cinema and I would watch Mad Max a hundred times, uh, One for the Cuckoo's Nest a hundred times, Getting of Wisdom a hundred times, um, John Diagon Australian film Mouth to Mouth, which came out in 1977, and I was absolutely fascinated how that performance never changed obviously because on film but that audiences saw different things in it and i saw different things in it i would i would go for the 50th time and see a moment or a look or go oh that's what that's about oh, wow so i i became um completely entranced in the fact that we could uh give ourselves over to something and learn so much I mean, the lights would come up in the cinema and I would see men mopping back tears and holding onto their girlfriend's hand and walking up the aisle and out the doors. And I thought to myself, I bet that man has never had that experience before. I bet he's never shown those emotions before. And they were, you know, and I thought, isn't it amazing that in a darkened cinema with nobody watching, we can become unraveled in a really incredible way. Those experiences, uh, working as an usher and seeing a theatre show many times, or the, or the cinema, as you described, they're uh, just irreplaceable experiences, aren't they? They give you a, a cultural reference to draw upon that then feeds into your life as, as an actor. Um, I find a lot of young people today, I don't know whether you would agree, uh, lack that cultural, uh, popular culture awareness of, you know, you talk about a, a film or a, an actor and uh, generally they don't know. No. Or, or they're, talk, they're singing a song and I go, uh, isn't a great song? And they go, yeah, it was first sung by blah, blah, blah. And you go, no, 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 they, the, that's a cover. That's and they go, no, 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 that was when the, that's, it's a Beyonce song. And you go, it, it's a James Brown song. <laughs> like, like, it's, a, it's a 1978 classic. And they go, no, 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 it's a 2014. Oh. So it is, it is, it is odd. Um, I bet the you were somebody who's, who stayed and, and um, watched all the credits roll at the end just to, to, to oh. identify who, who did this and what were the jobs in a film. And... Oh, I loved all that. Yeah. One, of the, one of the most amazing moments for me was um, all the Australian films back in the 70s basically were pastoral, historical, you know, romantic or getting of wisdoms or picking Hanging Rock or all that sort of stuff. Um, I was closing up one night at 11 o'clock and George, the projectionist, said to me, um, look, I'll lock up if you like. We had an 800-seat theatre. He said, I'll lock up if you like. Um, we've got some guys coming in to show some uh, footage that they've shot on this new film. And I went, oh, okay, well, I'll let them in and um, I might stay and watch it. 
And uh, he said, yeah. I said, who are they? And he said, uh, it's George Miller and Byron Kennedy. What? And I went, oh, okay. So I opened the door about half past 11 and said, hi, George. My name's Dean. Hi, Byron. They went down and sat in the eighth row. And I just rang George in the projection box and said, yep, they're here, ready to go. The curtains opened and Mad Max started. And I couldn't believe my eyes that Australians were capable of modern, edgy, dirty, violent, incredibly powerful, compelling stuff. When I thought we were only able to do sort of... Period you know, dramas, yeah. Period dramas or, or sort of boring television, you know. Uh, and it was, and I saw all the um, the original footage from Mad Max with no sound, just b- bits of stunt work, and it was just amazing. So they came back every Saturday night, and uh, and then the film. Funny story: the film was then premiered at uh, our theatre, and I went out with um, Mel and the whole cast. We had dinner after the premiere, um, and then we, I came back to the theatre, and they bought the Mad Max car to be on show. And we stole the keys of the car and we drove the Mad Max car around the streets of Melbourne about one o'clock in the morning. And you weren't pulled up. (laughs) No, it was absolutely incredible. Fantastic. Did you enjoy life as an actor? I enjoyed acting, but not the life of an actor. Yeah. which is why I think I, I, I left it. I love being on stage. I love the connection. I love warming up. I love rehearsing. I love uh, performing. But the downtime, the waiting, the hoping, the missing out on work, I found that very difficult. And my, my um, spirit, if you like, couldn't quite, wasn't strong enough to cope with the downtime and the rejections. Um, but when I got a job, I loved it. That's a big part of it, isn't it? How, how does one uh, equip themselves to handle so much rejection? I mean, there's not another occupation like it. No. Well, the new book I've got, um, which is called MAP, which stands for Manager, Artist and Person, and I describe the fact that uh, we've, we've got our artist in, inside us who is uh, compulsive, incredible, chaotic, mischievous, curious, um, vulnerable, sensitive, open, dynamic, courageous, you know, tell me to jump, I'll say how high, give, give everything. Then we've got our person, who's the person we go to bed with at night time and wake up in the morning and we've got our own hopes and dreams and, and foibles and prejudices and filters and hurts and wants and expectations. But if you don't have the manager piece, the manager is thick-skinned, logical, strategic, tactical, grounded, authentic and the manager has your back so and the manager is you of course it's all it's all us but yep. the manager is a part of you and i'd say to these the students here when you come back from backstage into the foyer after the show it's your manager mode that you're in and it's not inauthentic it's not like hi i'm dean Carey. i'm his manager at all it's you it's the best of you yep. but it's you going i'm going to be okay I don't need to have praise. I don't need to have people saying how good it was. And I won't get hurt if someone doesn't say I was good. So you're managing yourself. And um, they did a survey many years ago in America about what kept couples together. And it was very interesting. You'd think that the, the, uh, what would keep people together would be their sense of humour together or their lovemaking or the intimacy or their... Um, shared values or, you know, the the way they fight or how little they fight or whatever. The top answer was the ability to self-soothe, a person's ability to actually look after themselves and not need their partner to do it for them. Mm. I found that fascinating. And as an actor, your manager is your self-soother. And so if you don't get it, the manager voice in your head says, up, you did your best, good on you, on we go. And that's not glossing over anything. That's not saying you shouldn't feel pain or hurt. But at some point, your manager steps in and goes, come on, let's go. And I didn't have a manager back then. I had a a very, uh, uh, I think, healthy and creative and dynamic artist. But I had a person, principally, who was then running the show, um, who was 
oversensitive and, and, and worried and I hope this works and will it be okay? And, and, and that wasn't a good way to be. No, and often can become a saboteur to um, what you're trying to achieve. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I say to the students here, let's say one of the girls is doing a, 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 a rape victim or a, a, a pregnant, unmarried woman in a scene. It's very emotional and you've got to go to the casting. Your artist can't drive that car. The manager drives the car and the, the artist is ready to go. You've rehearsed it. You're ready to go, but not until you hear the word action. Do you go, artist, it's over to you? Because you can't be driving that car with your shield down, no. vulnerable, sensitive, um, mm. like the character is. It's a very, very, very interesting uh, dance. And if, 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 if people don't understand the dance, it literally can be deadly. Is acting a mysterious process? Can, can some people act and, and some not? Oh, very interesting. Um, many years ago, I used to teach impro to people who'd never acted before. Uh, it was on a Wednesday night, seven to nine o'clock. Uh, I was absolutely amazed at what the work I could, we could do together. But that's because maybe the environment that I set up was very uh, um, evocative, playful. Uh, you can do no wrong. There's no right and wrong. Uh, let's explore together, a bit like me in that cubby house back when I was a kid. Um, and and we, we used to, I used to play music a lot uh, in my classes and we'd do a lot of physical work and touching and running and hugging someone and high-fiving someone and, and jumping into a scene with someone and I'd say action, I'd count down the last 10 seconds. So people felt they were sort of not whipped up into something, but certainly they were on a ride that they could trust. Uh, but I think... It, it, it takes a certain mixture of someone to become an actor. It needs talent, technique and temperament. You need a temperament for it. You need to be able to understand skill and technique and then have that uh, creative um, power driving you at the same time. So I think it is a mix. You entered the, the teaching profession at a very young age. I mean, I think you were in your early 20s when you were teaching acting at, at NIDA and, and then WAPA. What, what drew you to teaching away from acting and wanting to sort of impart your knowledge onto uh, the younger students? Although you weren't that much older than them, I guess. No. Well, I, f I first began teaching at NIDA in 1985, so I was 25. Um, I wrote my first book, The Actors' Audition Manual, at 24. Uh, I began teaching at age 20 because... Um, I took a year off NIDA and went to work with Gail Edwards at Energy Connection in Adelaide. Yep. And we, we had a one-year contract. And a part of my contract and my wage was to teach a two-hour class every morning, Monday to Friday, 9 to 11, for the company as a warm-up. And I went, wow, well, I've got five days a week, uh, 52 weeks of that year, basically. And I constructed in my mind from my notes um, what would be what I thought would be an amazing, amazing journey. And I began to ask myself the questions, what do the students need to know? Why do they need to know it now? And how best could I teach it? So what, why, and how became my sort of mantra without even knowing that. There's Tinkerbell back again. Turn the page. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hilarious. Um, and uh, I, I thought, so I began to create the type of class I wanted, or I thought would be good. And we had an extraordinary year and I began to make up exercises and I'd written everything down at NIDA in my two years. So I went back to all my notes and went, well, I think I know what they were trying to do by that exercise, but it's, I think it's much better done like this. So I began to reframe everything, reorder everything, and then find the thread. And, uh, and, I came away from that year going, I love, absolutely love teaching. I love working with actors. Uh, it's, never, it's never changed. Um, I taught 653 actors, well, not actors, but teachers in Singapore last year. Um, and we would, I did a lecture first and it was so boring because I had translators and I went, I, I called a five-minute break and said to the person with the, in the, inside this huge stadium, I said, do those seats move? Can we pack up those seats? And he said, yeah, they're... They're not, you know, so we packed up all 653 seats, 
and I did a workshop with all those people. Wow. wow. It was fantastic. But I, I, um, I've never not been curious about a person's potential because I felt I was so thwarted at, um, uh, at school that the, the idea that there's a bigger playing field for people really excites me. Who are the, the, the teachers or practitioners who have influenced you in, in constructing the way that you understand that acting should be taught? Well, certainly at NIDA, it was Keith Bain. Uh, he was an extraordinary, uh, oh, oh, just just amazing. Um, he was benevolent. He was strict. He was rigorous. He was cheeky. He could demonstrate what he was talking about. He obviously loved movement because he came from, of course, an extraordinary career. And uh, he was destined to to live the last 20 years of his career uh, imparting his skills. And, and he only... He only ever wanted the best from every single person in that room. And I hadn't come across that before. Most teachers I'd come across were trying to catch me out, I felt like, right. trying to uh, prove how knowledgeable they were by telling me what an idiot I was. Uh, and, and Keith never did that, never shamed anybody, never blamed anybody. It's extraordinary. And then I got to Whopper and, of course, Lyle Jones, yeah. When, the moment I walked into an audition room with him and we were on a panel together and then I was head of acting at WAPA for the four years and he was head of theatre, uh, once again I saw a benevolent, uh, strict, rigorous, passionate, uh, caring person who only ever wanted the best for the audience, the play to, to, to come out in the air and stand tall and for every actor to do their best work possible. I, 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 those two people, without those two people, I may not be, I may not be, have done what I've done and enjoyed it the way I have. Great, great men, great men. Mm. Uh, you just touched on your, your workshop in China, but of course you've taught all over the world. Are there differences in the way that cultures, um, various cultures respond to the process of acting? Or does everybody oh. still have the same understanding? No, no, it's, I find it fascinating. Uh, when I teach in America, principally, they, they go into an emotional place straight away. And, uh, and I find I have to um, uh, unpick that emotion and, and, and start to find the connection and the rapport and the relationship that creates the emotion. Because the emotion's, you know, a, a byproduct of something else. And I find in America, they always go for the something else. Um, like there's one exercise I do where you run across the circle and you say the words, I love you. Or, and you run to someone and you go, I love you, I love you, I love you, I love you. You know, it's just so, so beautiful. And this actor just ran across the circle and stood at this girl, in front of this girl, and just stopped. And I said, um, yep, and you can do it. And he said, I, I can't, I just can't do it. I said, well, what, 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 why? He said, I don't know, I don't, I don't feel it. I said, what do you want to feel? He said, I, 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 I'm searching. I can't, I can't find it. I just can't. And he was like, and I went, okay, just look at the girl. And he went, okay, let's take a big breath, right? Describe her eyes to me. Oh, wow. They're sort of blue. And, and describe her cheekbones. And what's her lips? Because she was smiling. I said, what's her lips doing? And he went, oh. And then the moment he went, oh, I said, action, say it. And he said it. I said, acting is reacting. It's not about you. It's about the other person. So in America, I find that often, not all the time, but often they're jumping to the end product. So then I go to London and teach and um, they're staring away from uh, emotion uh, and they're very much connected to ideas and the thoughts, which is great. And I go, fantastic. Well, that thought, how, how deep could that thought go? So I'm, I find when I was in London teaching, I was getting them to move more out of their head and into their heart space. Um, of course, when I teach in Singapore, when I taught recently in, um, in Saigon, um, they don't often, they're not a very tactile culture or they find they've got, particularly in Singapore, they're, so when I say give someone a quick two-second hug, go, they all giggle and laugh and go, oh, my God, I can't, I can't do that, you know. <laughs> 
but we do that. And I, and I do an exercise where they're all holding hands and go through an adventure journey together. And so all four people are holding hands and going up a mountain and paragliding and being chased by a shark, like all sorts of amazing things. But they're all holding hands. And at the end of the exercise, they come together in a way that they're culturally not really attuned to doing, you know. Then when I taught in Moscow, um, I just went, wow, these people, I've never seen a mixture of head, which means ideas, imagery, poetry, heart, emotion, aching, touching, yearning, fierce intelligence, uh, and also a, a, such a bravery. Uh, I had the most amazing class over there. And they couldn't believe it because I didn't speak Russian and it was all going through a translator. But I was watching improvisations and I was side coaching. And they couldn't work out how I was side coaching so effectively when I had no idea what they were saying. But they were so clear. It was like having the sound turned down on a really good film. Yeah. You, you know what's going on, you know. So, and then you've got Australia. Um, we've got the head, we've got the heart. Uh, we've got the groundedness and we have the irreverence. We've got that, you know, larrikin, devil may care, let's just do it, you know, which is why people love Hugh Jackman, you know. Yeah. Um, and um, so the Australians have, like the, like the Russians, have a very, very terrific m melding or blend of uh, cultural um, dynamics that work wonderfully for an actor. And do you think that's why a lot of Australians are finding such success um, overseas, especially in Hollywood um, and perhaps the UK on the stage, because of those qualities? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I remember, you know, we were told that we were the flavour of the month in Los Angeles and Hollywood in about 1986 mm -hmm. and it wouldn't last too long. And here we are in 2020 and the flavour of the month, no, we're, we're, we're in everything. And a lot of Americans don't even know we're Australian. They think we're America. <laughs> think we're Americans, um, but no, we've got a fantastic um, workman-like energy, grounded, powerful, raw. Step up to the plate, tell the truth, heart in your sleeve. You know, with a with a cheeky, um, you know, penal colony <laughs> background um, okay. of uh, that sort of larrikin larrikin energy and that yeah. that larrikin energy which is sort of irreverence which is what i call irreverence which is non-obligation to outcome you're not trying to achieve an outcome doesn't mean you haven't got one in mind but you're not obligated to it so therefore you're going well here we are this is it let's go david mamet the the great playwright and teacher uh, has a theory that acting schools are all about pleasing the teacher what do you think of that Oh, that's a that's a that's a that's a killer right there. Um, yeah. As soon as you've got a power play in a creative educational uh, realm landscape, where the students are trying to jump hoops and prove something and please something, like one thing about Actors Centre, um, we don't have any culling process in our degree program. Doesn't mean everyone gets through. They've got to come to all the classes. They've got to do the work. They've got to keep up with the program. Um, if they're not temperamentally suited, we'll have that conversation with them. If their skill level isn't where it needs to be, we'll have that conversation with them. But we will never cull because of someone's talent. If they get into the program, I say to them, hand on heart, that we believe you can graduate above industry standard, otherwise you wouldn't be here. So I say this on day one. So you never, ever have to please anybody. And the first years look at me and sort of blink and I can see their shoulders relax because they're expecting me to say, um, you're very talented, but at the end of this year, half of you will be gone. So work out which half you want to be in, the ones who go to second year or the ones who get told to go home. Uh, and get voted off the island. Yeah. So um, like with um, reality TV shows, um, the human being's greatest fear is separateness. That's our greatest fear, that we don't belong. So all of the reality TV shows play on that. You, you, you're not a good enough dancer. You're not a good enough singer. You're not a good enough cook. You're not a good enough designer. So we're going to vote you off the show um, and you'll be 
and the fear of being projected from the tribe creates such anxiety for the show, which is for some people, I don't find it entertaining at all, but some people are glued to it. So if you've got a drama school where the students are trying to please the staff, then they're, they're, they're on a, they're living on a drip feed diet of anxiety and that can be creative, but it's exhaustive and it can't last. Let's talk about Actors Centre Australia. You founded the, the organisation or the institution at the age of 26 in 1987. That's pretty ballsy. I know. I, ca- I came back from America. I, I taught in um, a couple of dozen schools over there, Yale and LA University and CalArts and in Florida and all sorts of places. And uh, I went, why don't we have a place for actors to go to in Australia? It doesn't make any sense. I was over there and I went to HP Studios and I went to Circle on the Square and I went, there are all these professional classes for all these actors who are out of work and we haven't got one. And I knew we had amazing um, directors uh, that were directing on the main stages, but they only taught or directed inside drama schools like NIDA. So the only access to a Gail Edwards or a Nick Enright or a Meryl Tankard or a John Bell or a Wayne Harrison was if they came and directed you at a drama school. So I went looking with my friend and we found an old church hall, 1880 Church Hall in um, Surrey Hills, and then I rang Nick Enright and Gail and Meryl Tankard and John Bell and uh, Wayne Harrison and uh, everybody. And I said, would you come and teach some classes? And they went, sure. So we had a, our first open day and I was, I'd, I'd been there for weeks painting and cleaning and because there'd only been pigeons living in the, in the space for 20 years. So you can imagine what it was like inside. I have these wonderful actors come and help me. And then it, we're opening at 10 o'clock and at 10 to 10, I turned to a friend and said, what if nobody comes? What if, what if I said, this, I had, hadn't crossed my mind. I was so busy getting it ready. And he said, what are you talking about? Look out the window. And looked out the window and there was a queue of actors stretched right across the courtyard, all in line, waiting for 10 o'clock for us to open. And I went, wow. And it was a really, really exciting time, you know, with the likes of Nicole Kidman and all sorts of actors. that had nowhere else to go, you know. There was no NIDA open program. There was no screen-wise. There was no uh, courses anywhere. Um, casting directors hadn't got the idea yet at night time that they've got a premises they could use to teach. That never crossed their mind before. They just leave at 6 o'clock and turn the lights out and walk away and there'd be a camera and TV and a whole studio sitting in there. So... Like uh, we created something that Australia never had before and it was really exciting. And here you are 35 years later. Did you think it would last that long or continue to, no, to I me- grow? No, I, I remember um, um, it was, it's always been tough because we don't get any funding and we just have to survive. We're not out to make money. We're, we we want to do the best. So our quality is small classes and we want to pay the staff well and, uh, but I remember we got to five years anniversary and I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe. But the funniest thing was um, we didn't, of course, we couldn't afford any staff. So I was receptionist. So I would be sitting at a, t- at a table um, with a little cash box and um, little raffle tickets to hand to people. And this was your class ticket and take their names and take their money and give them their change. And they go, oh, all right, there's, there's, he, he's a nice guy. He's a lovely guy. You know. And, of course, when it had come to time to teach the class, I'd close the cash tin, walk to the door, then take all their tickets as an usher, go, thank you, and go in. Then I'd come around and teach the class. And they go, why is the receptionist teaching the class? And they probably thought, oh, he's not bad, actually. <laughs> maybe the real guy, maybe Dean Carey didn't turn up today and the, and the guy who took the tickets had to, <laughs> to teach the class. So over the years, you, you build these the various courses. How do you decide what needs to be studied in, a, in an actor's education? Well, I go back to what uh, Lyle Jones told me once. He said, an actor doesn't need to learn anything that they don't need to learn yet. They only need to learn what they need to learn now. So he would never talk about what's coming up or... Um, finessing some skill, it would just be, let's get this sorted. So I was very keen to create 
And of course, the, the, the degree course we've got now, when I wrote that in 1999, um, I didn't realise so many years later, it was the course I wanted when I was at drama school. Mm. I created what I think is the, a pretty perfect educational arc. Um, like one of the things that we do is um, there's virtually no script work for the first six months. It's nonverbal, it's physical, it's mask, it's Feldenkrais, it's yoga, it's voice, it's movement, um, it's impro, which is nonverbal, and then verbal. Uh, and they're itching to get a script six months in. But when they get the script, wow, they make a meal of it because they haven't been flooded with trying to act with a script early on. And the other thing we don't do is no one gets in front of a camera for 18 months. So no one sees themselves back on a screen for 18 months, which means they can be free of self-consciousness. And then finally, when they do see themselves on the screen and they hate themselves, their eyes are too close together, their nose is too big and they had no idea their hair looked like that, um, they can get over it pretty quickly because they've had 18 months of solid training under their belt. A lot of acting schools, and I'm thinking of one in particular, had a reputation for breaking the student down and, you know, really sort of uh, crushing them. I guess there's Tinkerbell again. Turn the page. Is that your Tinkerbell or my Tinkerbell? I, I, can't, I, I can't work it out. I can't work it out. She's flying around somewhere. She's, oh, yeah, she's having a field day today. <laughs> Um, in breaking the student down. But I guess that's what you're doing in a very gentle way. I mean, not breaking them down, but you're resetting them so that they are open to what they are going to experience further on in their education. Yes. I mean, the breaking down thing, I've always had a, such a uh, terrible reaction with because I, I, I often say to the students that, um, you know, you might break down a washing machine or you might break down a, an old car and rebuild it and, and refurbish it, um, refashion it. Uh, I said, because that's because it's broken. And I say to the actors, you're not broken. Um, you're going to learn and let go of things and grow and expand, but you're not broken. Uh, and I don't often use those words, but that's the intention behind it. Because look, the words I do use on the first day of the course is, what would it be like to be able to say the following words. And there's two sets of words. The first set of words is, I'm okay. I.e., I'm okay with what I've learnt, what I know I don't know, with how far I've come, with the limited education on Shakespeare, with the fact I think I can't sing or whatever it might be. Could you be okay just the way you are? And then the second half of that is, and there's more. So if you're not chasing to prove or please because you're somehow broken and you need to prove to someone that you're okay, uh, you'll never get a creative education. Uh, you will be sabotaged and hijacked by the proving process. But to be able to say, now, of course, if you don't do the end, there's more and you only get the I'm okay, there's nowhere to go. If you're okay, don't do a program. Just stay under the doona. Just stay in bed. Like, don't do anything because you're okay. Um, but to be able to say, I'm okay, I'm okay where I am. I'm okay with the schooling I've had, with the education I've had, with the limited or broad reading I've done in my, I'm okay exactly as I am. And there is more ahead. And that's how we start the first day of the program. And I can, I do the first four hours and I can see the students go, wow, there is no, politics, no power play. Uh, I don't have to jump hurdles. There'll be lots of hurdles uh, ahead. But one of the things I, I have always said here is that um, we have a paradigm of high support, high challenge, which equals high performance. So no matter if I give a student a challenge that's on a one to 10 scale, 12 to them, I am there giving them 12 um, support. So no one will be given a challenge as in, well, fall on your face. Let's see how you go now. Mm. Uh, so if it's a big challenge, we'll go, it's a big challenge and we're with you. What can we learn from this? And that, that, that creates high performance. What do you look for in a student who is auditioning for the program? Well, I do often do the warm-up and uh, you're looking for someone who um, 
who's curious, who's willing to connect, who's willing to, to share, who, who has a certain level of, of confidence in um, taking the stage and playing the character. Um, I'm looking for someone who, who, and which is what I say in the beginning of the, of the talk I give, which is um, I guess a lot of people want to know what we're looking for and everyone looks at me in the room, all 45 people look and go, not a yeah, yeah, what are you looking for? And then I say exactly what you've bought today. And they all blink and breathe and I go, everything that you've worked on is what, what we're going to see today. The move, the walk, the entrance, the everything. I said, so trust everything that you've done. And because of that, uh, there isn't any sense of pushing or proving in the room. And there's a very genuine, authentic, organic uh, flow of energy which starts. And unlike other drama schools who, who tell people not to clap after each person's speech, um, we encourage it. And we, right. we say to all the students, after everybody's performance finishes, everyone claps. Because it is a performance. Yes, it's an audition, but it's actually a performance. There's an audience, there's an author, there's a cast, um, and there's a communication that takes place. So let's applaud the fact that someone got up there and did their piece, you know. I remember, I remember one time a, a girl got up. I think she was, she was Spanish. She'd come from Spain and she did a piece and she wasn't really happy with it. And she was sort of beating herself up about it uh, afterwards. I could just sit, see in her face and she had a fist that she sort of punched into the side of her thigh. Uh, and I said, I just want you to know that what you did for us was really terrific. And, and it was. I said, we, we really enjoyed it. Oh, but it wasn't what I, I said. It may not be what you wanted it to be or thought it could be. I said, but I want you to know that we got a lot from it and we're going to thank you for what you shared with us. And we clapped and she sort of, her shoulders once again dropped and she went, okay. And it wasn't, you can't do something like that if it's fake. Mm. You know, it was, and it was genuine because the students, she was amazing. And then I said to her, uh, would you be able to do the speech in Spanish? And she went, wow, I'm not going to be very good. I won't get all the words right. I said, we'll never know. <laughs> we will never know. So I said, go for it. And it was jaw-droppingly incredible. Wow. And that's what she wanted to do. But she couldn't do it with English. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it was just, uh, and she got into the program and she was phenomenal. Phenomenal. That's the thing as a teacher, isn't it? Finding the key that's going to unlock or enlighten the student. Well, that's it. Uh, that's all there ever is. It's, it's like... I'm, I'm with you. I'm on the journey with you. Like I find when I'm directing, I, I've just written a book called um, The What, Why and How of Teaching Drama. And it'll be coming out, coming out I think, turn the page. Um, uh, and it's coming, it's coming out I'm, next year. Ne we're nearly at the end of the book. <laughs> <laughs> ne ne um, next year, we'll look forward to that. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and... Um, I, I talk about side coaching and how important I think side coaching is in, in teaching. Uh, and I, I've side, I side coach a lot, not too much, but enough for rather than calling stop and then saying, look, I think this scene could be, no, 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 I think you're dragging it down. I think that, no, no. rather than doing that, I'll just go, terrific, think faster. Think faster, see what happens. Jump on board the energy, go, go, go. Let's see what wants to happen. So I'm, I'm either side coaching, um, as a facilitator or the other version of it is I side coach from the point of view of the character. So when I'm directing a show, uh, they might do a run of the scene and I'll walk up to the male character and I'll, I'll just, I'll just walk up and I'll say, she's a bitch. She mm -hmm. isn't the fact that she could stand there and lie to you like she's doing is absolutely incredible. <laughs> And they go, oh, it is. I just can't believe it. I go, well, I don't take the shit from her anymore. Just don't take it. And he says, well, I don't think I should. I go, no. Let's do the scene again. Tear shreds off her. She deserves it. <laughs> we'll do the scene again. And it's incredible. Mm. Not because of me, but as you said before, because a little key went, 
the, your character, rather than me saying, your character could be bolder here, I think, Mike. Mm. I, think, I think you could really uh, be louder and make stronger choices. And he goes, oh, okay, let me try that. But if I walk up and say, what a bitch, what a bitch. Yeah. You know. Plant, plant those thoughts. Yes. You know, and um, I created an exercise um, from that side coaching, which I call inner champion. And um, very briefly, there's a person sitting off, off stage, which is the character's inner champion. And whatever the character is feeling, the inner champion feels and affirms. So if Hamlet's on stage and comes across to his, his inner champion, Hamlet might go, I'm really frightened by the ghost. And the inner champion goes, it is fucking terrifying. I cannot believe what we're seeing. He looks like your father. And Hamlet goes, I know, but I don't know if it is. And the, and the inner champion goes, I don't know, but you're going to have to find out. You're going to have to do this. And Hamlet goes, I, I am, aren't I? They go, yes. And he walks back into the scene and goes, poor ghost, speak. You know, And it's quite amazing because the inner champion is um, literally championing the character. And I think that's, that needs to happen more. Yeah. You've written a few publications. You talked about the first one, uh, the actor's uh, manual, uh, audition manual, wasn't it, at 24? Yes. And most recently, or well, the one to come out next year, but uh, the Acting Edge, it was an online publication in which you unleash eight essential elements of acting. Uh, what are a couple essential elements of acting? Well, I, I really enjoyed writing that book because... Um, it was the online program was in eight stages and I looked at uh, each stage had a, had its own theme. And like one of them was courage, the courage to connect, the courage to perform, the, the courage to relate, the courage to let go, uh, the courage to go beyond where you might normally be stopped. And so all of the exercises were about courage and how important that is. Um, and that courage is an act. I tell the students this courage is an act of will. Courage isn't something you've got or haven't got. It's not upstairs in your locker and you've lost the key. Courage is an act of will. You could feel as frightened and as feeble and as vulnerable as possible. And then through an act of will go, I'm stepping forward. So I tried to capture in that book, the eight essential elements um, of acting without which, uh, acting isn't quite everything it can be. And the, the courage to fail also, I guess. Failure yes. is an important part of being an actor, isn't it? Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I, I love, I'm um, going back to Lyle Jones again, I loved when I heard him say at the beginning of a reading of a play he was directing, he said to the cast, I don't know how this should go. Now, that's, that's a pretty powerful statement if that's all you say. Because yeah. if I was an actor, I'd be running for the door, exit door as fast as possible. So I think, <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what it should be. So if you don't know, we're stuffed. But Lyle added something else onto it, which is, but I'll know it when I see it. So I don't know how this play should be, but I'll know it when I see it. And so they weren't trying to prove Lyle right. They were exploring uh, on Lyle's behalf, if you like. And then, and then he would say, that's it. That's it. Perfect. Do that again. That's what he wants to say, you know. So I, I um, and then when it's not right, and I, I give this, um, it's a great question because there's no right and wrong in acting. What I say is some things are more effective. So if someone makes a choice on stage in, in my rehearsal, I won't say that's wrong. I'll walk up and I'll go, great. What happens if you go across to her at that point? put your hands around her waist what, and what happens if you, if you lay your whole head on her shoulder and say that line? Let, let's try that in that moment of checkoff. So rather than being, you know, four metres apart, what's it like if you're that intimate with each other? And so we explore things and I go, that works well. And I, I've never been, some directors say what I want, like as in, I think it should be this. I think it should be that. You know, I want more of this. I want more power. I've never said the word I. I've only ever said the play. And I think that's important that we go, I think the play wants us to go faster now. I think the play wants to power up now. I think the playwright wants us to use these ideas in, in this scene. 
um, with more with more um, vitriol or more, uh, you know, and I always say to the actors, you know, you don't get angry on stage, you get even, which is very different than getting angry. Um, yeah. So I'll, I'll say, you know, get as angry as you want, but make sure you get even. You've got to win this, you know, and let's turn up the dials and see how, how, how even you can, you can make this contest. So in that paradigm, there is no failure. There's only exploration and, and that feels right, that looks right, that works. And we'll go, yep, cut, print, perfect. Let's solve it together. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Dean, do you have any thoughts about how the acting profession will rise out of the crisis that the globe is currently experiencing? Oh, oh. I mean, it's tragic. Ding. We're, we're, we're ding <laughs> to the page. <laughs> yeah, it's fair enough. Um, it's just, it's, it's just horrible, isn't it? What, um, what it's done to artists and their ability to uh, express themselves. I mean, that's bound to have an effect on individuals, I guess, if they can't sort of practice their craft. But we we see them finding all sorts of platforms to to attempt to do that. Well, that's right. I mean. The, uh, the, the genie is out of the bottle. So COVID is out. COVID's not going back in the bottle. Um, so, and unlike, you can't walk around with Ebola and not know it. You can't walk around with SARS and not know it, but you can walk around with COVID and not know it. So somebody can be a, a asymptomatic uh, and be walking around from place to place, airport to airport, and not know they have it and be spreading it. So that's, that's a really scary piece of the puzzle because that means social distancing is the only, one of the only ways we can avoid the, that transmission. So audiences won't feel comfortable. I, I wouldn't feel comfortable sitting next to somebody in a theatre for three hours. Yeah, yeah. So we're going to have to have a seat in front of me. We've got a show opening tonight, actually, The Seagull. Uh, and in the audience, we've got a seat in front of the person, empty, a seat to the left of the person, empty, to the right and behind them. So one person's taking up five seats. And the person next to them is taking up, not five, because they're sharing one. But so we're all taking up four, three, sorry, three seats each. So what happens to the Griffin and Belvoir Street and Eternity Playhouse and the Nancy Hayes Theatre? when their capacities are reduced from 100 to 10. Mm, mm. I, don't, I, don't, I, I, I just don't know what's going to happen. I, I just don't know. Um, and certainly they won't be doing plays with more than two people in it. They can't afford it anymore. No, no. So yes, there's going to be interesting knock-on effects, won't there, with, for, with playwrights and Oh, it'll be, we're only doing plays with two people maximum. And mm. so the, the employment will nosedive. So... You know, we'll need stories more than ever and, you know, people can zoom as much as they want, but in the end you sort of do want the visceral kinesthetic experience of being there live. Uh, I, 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 don't, I just don't know. And then the other thing is, let's say we didn't have social distancing, what play would I choose to go and see? I, I, I don't know. 36,000 dead in Brazil. You know, 45 in, in, in France, uh, 115,000 in America and rising. And yeah. it's just hitting India now, um, the Amazon. So if I go and see a play, it's very domestic and people are <laughs> worrying about, like, we're in the play. We're in an epic Shakespeare play. Yeah. Um, you know, COVID is the killer. Uh, and, and, and this is a hugely powerful thing. So... I don't know what play I'd, I'd actually pay a ticket to go and see that, that could possibly uh, compete with what is happening in life. I think we will want to lose ourselves, like in war, we'll want to lose ourselves in musicals and cabarets and, you know, amazing song and maybe poetry and, you know, um, stand-up stand -up comics would be great. You know, that, I mean, we'll, we'll, want to, we'll want to let go, you know, that's for sure. But, you know, how... Like tonight, let's say we open, we open tonight, we've got an audience of 25 people. They're all sitting a four-metre gap and half the audience are wearing masks. <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I don't know. It's an Ionesco play. 
It is. It is. And, and how weird will that be if someone's in a mask? Are they sick? Are they unwell? Are they, what do we think about that? Uh, well, it's, you know, there's the, the coffer in the theatre, you know, whether you've swallowed the wrong way and they've got a tickle, you know, that's going to send so much anxiety through the audience. Are they, are they ill? That's right. And there always is a coffer in the audience because when everything gets quiet, someone becomes aware of themselves and they start to become self-conscious about clearing their throat or swallowing or whatever it might be. Um, but you're right, someone starts coughing, you could have every single person in the audience leave. Yeah. You could have an actor leave the stage, not feeling comfortable to go on. Yeah. Like, and not just audi- um, capacities of audiences, but um, how do you keep distancing on stage? And what about backstage? Dressing rooms are notoriously tiny backstage. Yeah, yeah. So how Orchestra- do you have a cast of 10 people or five people back there? I, I, it's, it's a conundrum. We, we won't know for a few, fair few months, you know. And when, when the economy goes off life support in September uh, and JobKeeper, JobSeeker go, then we're, we're going to be in free fall. Yeah. Yes. I can hear actors warming up for tonight's performance. Uh, it's, it's true, yes, I love it. I, during the lockdown, of course, everyone was at home, we were teaching online, and this building felt so horribly cold and inhospitable. Uh, it was just awful. And then you get all this sound when they're back, and you go, that's what this building's meant to, to be. It's about, it's about energy and fun and communication and contact and, you know, Dean, it's been wonderful chatting to you. Thank you so much, you and Tinkerbell, for being on the, uh, the show today. <laughs> we both get paid for this. You, you both get paid for that. The uh, the checks in the mail. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but uh, it's extraordinary what you've achieved with the the Actors Centre, and uh, we look forward to uh, your book being released next year. And uh, continued joy and success in all you do. Well, I I, I I think that actors are the bravest people I know, and audiences. Uh, I mean, before COVID, all around the world, uh, just think how many hundreds of thousands of performance are happening in parks, in streets, in theatres, in amphitheatres, in rainforests, in wherever. Stories, as we mentioned at the beginning, stories are the most powerful thing. And we learn most about who we are and what we're capable of and what our potential is via and through story. So it'll never go away and I'm just... I count my lucky stars. I've been able to live my life in this profession. And that was my conversation with Dean Carey. Much to think about there in this time of COVID and fascinating insights into the training of actors. Thanks for making us a part of your podcast listening. A new episode of The Stages podcast is released every Thursday. I know that many of you have been recommending the podcast to colleagues and friends. Your enthusiasm is much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Peter Ayers and you've been listening to Stages, the podcast that converses with creatives. Keep warm, keep well, catch you next time.